a member of the Red Sox Nation. It's a kind of a family. Wherever I roam, a Fenway home, that's where I long to be. I'm a member of the Red Sox Nation. It's a kind of insanity. Yeah, I live and die with Red Sox pride for eternity. I fake a smile November until opening day. Suffering baseball withdrawal around the clock. When April comes, hey, meet me down on Yawkey Way. That's when Red Sox It's a kind of a family Wherever I roam, a Fenway Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Benny and the Bets podcast covering Boston Red Sox baseball as well as MLB-wide hot stove. For everyone staying up late tonight on Periscope, the podcast can be found, as always, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, Player FM, and literally probably about 20 other different places uh, on Google. So chances are, wherever you listen to your podcasts, we are probably available on those apps. Uh, MLB Winter Meetings uh, started today, so starting to get an idea of uh, the directions of uh, which teams, which teams intend to trade, which might... uh, intend to basically utilize the actual free agent market. We will be getting into that momentarily. I am Terry Cushman. Chris Saunders will be filling in for Jeremy Schilling today. And we also have, uh, for the first time in quite a while, Jesse Friedman from the Rattle Podcast, which uh, can be found, I know, on iTunes, Spreaker. And uh, Jesse, where else could they find the Rattle we pride ourselves, Terry, in being uh, being found pretty much all over the internet. So chances are, if if there's a podcast out there um, on an app or, or a website, uh, you're probably going to find the rattle there as well. So iHeartRadio, as you mentioned, Spreaker, iTunes, Google Play, uh, pretty much anywhere you could find a podcast. Our hope is you can find the rattle there as well. All right. Very good. Chris, how are you doing, my friend? Not bad, Terry. It's nice to be back on again. Yeah, late scratch for Jeremy, so appreciate you uh, coming on. And I think the three of us can uh, all geek out together on uh, baseball on this, for me, what's a chilly December night. I guess you're in nice weather, but Chris, it uh, must be pretty cold for you right now. Yeah, currently 25 degrees and getting colder. <laughs> okay. Ooh. We were uh, in the teens. I, I was up at uh, 3.30 this morning hauling U.S. mail, so pretty chilly out there as well. So anyway, getting right into it, uh, winter meetings, as I touched on in the intro, are kicking off and a little bit more Machado talk uh, than anything. Uh, Jesse, why don't we lead off with you? Uh, which of the two do you expect to sign first, Machado or Harper? I think it's really hard to say. I think both of these guys are obviously very highly regarded. Uh, Manny Machado, uh, I think, is maybe the more interesting situation of the two, just given what he did or 
maybe didn't do um, in the World Series is Terry. I'm sure you're you're well familiar. <laughs> uh, he he kind of came across as, as the guy who's all talk, you know, as the as the guy who's going to talk himself up, uh, talk up his his ability without necessarily you know going out there on an everyday basis and showing it on the field. Uh, he wasn't bad necessarily uh, by any means with the Dodgers, but he really wasn't the same guy that he was in Baltimore. Um, and I, I wonder if if maybe his second half with the Dodgers and, and you know, his comments about not really trying hard, maybe not really being a max effort type of player, which I feel like baseball has, has kind of grown a stereotype as being the sport where pretty much everyone plays hard. There really aren't a lot of guys in the game of baseball that, you know, feel like they have it easy, that, that take it easy. You see a lot of guys, you know, running out ground balls, uh, doing all of the little things. It's it's kind of just part of the game of baseball for a lot of people, even at the professional level. And Manny Machado is, has seemed to make the argument for himself that he's a little bit beyond that. And, and, you know, I think Bryce Harper maybe has his own PR issues as well. You know, people kind of look at him as a hot dog, too. Um, so these are, you know, two of the best young players in this game. But I think they also come with a little bit of baggage. And I think teams, it's it's going to take a little bit of while, a little bit of time, excuse me, for teams to get past that. It's kind of uh, funny how he was managed by Buck Showalter all but the last two months of his career. Had some controversy, but was mostly kept in check. Then he goes across the country to L.A., gets managed by Dave Roberts. Suddenly, he's having an incident every other game. You know, right. now, now that he's not. You know, under the strict management of Showalter, I found that interesting. Chris, your team is connected the most hotly Ugh. to uh, Manny Machado, but do yeah. do you also kind of believe his comments? You know, the Johnny Hustle comments uh, specifically kind of narrowed his market at least a little bit. I don't even know if the comments really narrowed it as much as the play on the field. I mean, it kind of – you can make the case that if Machado didn't make the playoffs and he stayed with Baltimore, he would be benefit, benefiting so much more from that in the ilk that Harper is more likely going to because nothing bad happened to Harper because he didn't make the playoffs. So there wasn't anything to look at. But Machado with the Johnny Hustle comment – and then what he did in the playoffs, both against the Brewers and then the Dodgers, just everything was that perfect storm, but not perfect for Machado. And, you know, you look at the teams that are rumored for him, the Yankees, the Phillies, the White Sox. You know, I saw someone mention the Braves, but, you know, I, I think looking at Machado, it's it's kind of in that spectrum of which team is going to want to you know, the contract is going to be between 10 to 12 years. It's just a matter of what are the logistics going to be and how, like, does Machado want to go to a team like the White Sox, which is about maybe a year or two away from really competing, or does he want to go to a team like the Phillies, which are, in most cases, you could say, have a good shot winning the division next year because of the pieces that they have, and they're still going because they were rumored to get Madison Bumgarner as well, and they have – a top five farm system to be able to go out and get a guy like Mad Bum. Absolutely. I noticed a, uh, I don't remember where I saw it, but uh, on Twitter, uh, you know, within my, you know, national writers feed, apparently the Yankees are unwilling to go more than 300 to sign Harp, uh, excuse me, sign Machado. 
And I think that was a direct quote from Cashman, actually. And can the Yankees still sign him, do you believe, or do you think it's inevitable that his overall uh, contract value will exceed 300 with another team? Well, I can answer that with the same thing with Harper. If we, you know, if if and when we get to that question as well, because you look at Harper was offered, I think it was ten years for three hundred million dollars or something of that range. That's what he it said was. no to that. Okay, so he he rejected that. And I was actually listening to Rizzo on High Heat not too long ago. You know, during their videos where they go back and show you know what what was played earlier in the day, and Rizzo said that he gave Harper six weeks to be able to think about, okay, do you want to accept the contract or not? Harper didn't, and is there a chance that he can go back? Yes, there is, but the Nationals might even decrease the value of the contract. And the reason why I mention that is because Machado, if he wants $300 million, he's not going to go to the Yankees. The one thing that Cashman and the Yankees have shown this offseason, I have so much praise for the front office. They are not budging on what they want to offer. What I read with Corbin, they didn't even offer him a contract because it started at six years for 126. There was reports that it was five years for 100 that the Yankees offered. It realistically, they didn't even offer a contract because they were not budging past five years. Same thing with J.A. Happ. They want to go to two years, maybe a third for an option, but mainly two years. And Happ wants three years for 50-plus million. The Yankees aren't going to budge. Cashman and the front office see the bigger picture and they're not gonna they're not gonna do what the old regime of the Yankees did when they signed the big time guys of Teixeira, McCann, CC, you look at A Rod to a certain degree because now Teixeira's contract they had to buy out. McCann they had a trade. I know CC's been a better pitcher now that he's in the second twilight of his, you know, career, but you know, we've seen that these big time contracts they're not good. They're a cancer to a team. I mean, look at the Arizona Diamondbacks with Granke. They're just trying to unload him. Yeah, absolutely. And Cashman basically came right out with it today and said they're not interested in Bryce Harper because they have uh, six outfielders presently and their needs are elsewhere. So Harper and the Yankees definitely don't seem to be a fit. Jesse, are you kind of surprised that even with Bryce Harper, who, in my opinion, is a gamer, like he cares about his on-field performance and he does want to win, and his he he runs his mouth, sure, but he doesn't he doesn't have the same shenanigans that Manny Machado does. And from a pure baseball standpoint, I would probably prefer Harper. You know, even though I hate his attitude, and are you surprised, Jesse, that the the market seems to be kind of small for him? You know, maybe just two or three serious teams in play right now that we know of. Yeah, honestly, Terry, I'm I'm really not surprised at all. Uh, I think, like Chris was saying before, baseball is a very different game now. You know, than it was several years ago. Teams, I think, time and time again, are starting to recognize. That those big, you know, eight, nine, ten, you mentioned even 12 year contracts that, that, you know, could be shelled out for guys like Machado and Harper, they don't work. I don't think the Angels would have signed Pujols again if, if they could do it over. I don't think, you know, the Diamondbacks, even though Granky has honestly been very good for them, I don't know if they would make that move. 
um, if, if they could do that over again. Uh, the Red Sox with David Price, I doubt they would do that again. Pretty much every big major contract that's been signed over the last five or ten years in this game has gone the wrong direction. I, Max Scherzer with the Nationals is, is really really the one contract that I can think of, at least off the top of my head, that had you know a lot of years, big money, and I think the team would actually do it again if they could. Um, so I, I think as, as good as Bryce Harper and Manny Machado are, and they are excellent, they are two of the best young players in this game. They're both still extremely young. They're on the right side of 30 years old, unlike a lot of the other free agents on the market. But I think you have to consider this is this is baseball. It's saber metrics. You know, it's it's these deeper numbers and analytics. And what those numbers are telling front offices is don't budge. You know, don't go past your comfort zone with the amount of money you have to spend. And and like Chris said, I I applaud the Yankees. You know, the Yankees are a big market team. Uh, teams like the Diamondbacks, we look up to you uh, because in some ways it's it's felt in, in years past that, you know, the Diamondbacks are kind of a farm system for for other teams. Um, and, and, you know, maybe those days aren't completely over as we see Corbin leaving, Goldschmidt leaving. It's a hard day to be a Diamondbacks fan, uh, in all honesty. But I, I think baseball is changing in a lot of ways and that even the teams on the upper end of the market, they're not willing to go as as far as they were before. And I think I don't think any team is going to budge for a Machado or a Harper, especially given that their market sizes are not as big as people were expecting. I think that's just the nature of, of the game of baseball. And, and for Harper and Machado, it doesn't work out great, but I have a feeling they're going to be okay financially. I, I wouldn't be too concerned if I were them. <laughs> yeah, and, and Chris brought up the fact that Harper – declined the 10-year, $300 million offer from the Nationals. And I just feel like he anticipated his market to be bigger. And Scott Boris would probably paint him the prettiest picture ever, you know, to get him to go along with that. But I just, I'm just, I'm a little more surprised. I figured there'd be up to five or six teams. And, you know, I'm really only seeing the Phillies right now. And there was a tweet from... Heyman that suggested Harper wasn't really thrilled with the city of Philadelphia like that's not really where he wants to spend the bulk of his career and I don't know I mean but they they still have to be in play because they have the checkbook and then I just can't rule the Nationals out and I think the Dodgers are probably going to be in play but who else outside of them might jump in some people mention Atlanta but I really can't see that. Yeah, I think Atlanta is is maybe they're right on the cusp. Uh, they were obviously a really good team this last year. They made um, the playoffs. I, I do look at them as a team that maybe, if not this offseason, I do think they're going to develop into kind of a, a free agent destination. Um, but I, I, I really don't. It's hard for me to imagine other teams getting into this. There, there are really not that many teams in baseball who have the money uh, to put themselves in this kind of conversation. And like I mentioned with, you know, the way that the game of baseball has progressed, I think even teams that do maybe have the money to be able to go out and make a Machado or a Bryce Harper type of move. I don't know if they're necessarily willing to do what it would take. And, and another, another reason for that that I want to bring in here is that Bryce Harper and Manny Machado as good as they are, are not perfect baseball players. You look at the analytic side for their defense last season, 
Bryce Harper, I don't have numbers in front of me, but I believe he was one of the worst defensive outfielders in all of baseball last year. He has the arm. There's no doubt about that. But beyond that, I don't think he moves around necessarily in a corner outfield spot as well as a lot of people would hope or think that a guy with the baseball acumen and Bryce Harper would. And, and it's probably the same thing with Manny Machado. He's, he's obviously a gold glove caliber third baseman. We've seen that. But he's a guy who, who really seems to want to play shortstop. And the numbers on the analytics side for that do not support Manny Machado in that position uh, at all. And, and I think that's another thing that a lot of these franchises are going to be looking at is, is, you know, these are numbers that get looked at. You know, how good are you defensively? It's not just about how many errors you made or didn't make. Uh, it's about a lot of these more advanced statistics. Uh, you know, defensive run saved is maybe the most common one among many others. And these numbers do not support Bryce Harper and Manny Machado at all. And it's hard to, you know, shell out $300 plus million for a guy who is really, really good but doesn't necessarily – check all the boxes of what you want out of a baseball player. Yeah, and it seems like teams now more than ever are investing in their own, you know, prospects. I just there hasn't been too many epic moves at the uh trade deadline as there had been maybe 4 or 5 years ago. I know the Dodgers gave up at least one top prospect for Machado. That's Chris's uh, forte. Maybe we can get into that in a second. And I know Mejia went to um, went to San Diego in the um, in the Brad Hand trade. So, have you noticed a similar trend, Chris? With you know, with teams just not giving up their top two, three, four prospects. Well, I think teams now, you know, as we mentioned with analytics, they they know what kind of projection that a player is going to be for the next one, two, three, four, whatever the extent of the contract is and the age of the player. And I think you have those teams that, like the Dodgers, when they gave up Kramer and Diaz and a couple other, you know, a couple pitchers as well to try to, you know, go, you know, go all in for Machado and to a certain degree at worth, they just were a couple games short against the Red Sox. You know, you've seen other teams as well kind of give up as much as they can to try to stay in that winning mode, but they realize that, okay, if we're going to give up our talent now in our system, it's going to take us longer to, to, you know, in a way to reboot. That's why I think to a certain degree Cleveland is trying to restock the farm system by giving up a guy like Kluber or Bauer because realistically, their farm system has taken a hit the last couple of years, even with the losses of Frazier, Sheffield, Mejia. I mean, you can go down the line of other guys who maybe weren't in their top 30 a year, year and a half ago, are starting to creep up you know, in that ilk. And that division, specifically in the AL Central, is so bad. I mean, I'm not on the, I'm not on the train yet for the White Sox or even the Minnesota Twins because the Twins just got a new manager. And the White Sox have to prove that they can win. So Cleveland realistically could give up one of those guys, either Bauer or Kluber, and still win the division. I don't know if they're going to win the World Series, but that just goes to show how much teams are prioritizing prospects and not wanting to give them up because they know how much service time and arbitration, all that goes into you know what can we keep and what players can't we keep. I was just thinking – oh, go ahead, Jesse. 
I didn't. I didn't say anything. Go for it, Terry. Oh, I thought you were about to chime in because I was going to kind of go off in a little different direction. But um, no, go for it. Earlier, I was just thinking how you know I was thinking about the Indian situation and the stuff that's being speculated. You mentioned Kluber, Bauer. They already did trade uh, Jan Gomes to the Nationals, and I was just thinking like. What if Kluber was a Red Sox player with three years of control left and Dombrowski was talking about trading him and just the meltdown that would be happening right now at the thought of that? Because, I mean, and I look at the Evaldi thing specifically, and I wasn't a Nathan Evaldi proponent at four years. At two years, fine. You know, I would have brought him back for any you know, annual value, really. But, you know, we just got done with Hanley, you know, on a four-year deal and – I just think Evaldi is who he is, and but Red Sox fans just wouldn't, you know, take no for an answer. Every time I was in a debate, I just couldn't do it. And and here are the Indians, like, you know, willing to give off, you know, one of the best pitchers of the last five years. I mean, I think he's been a top, Kluber has been a top two or three Cy Young guy in, in four out of the last five years. And I know Scherzer's always up there, but... Just, uh, it would be fun to just watch the hysteria if you're me. And, uh, cause, you know, I definitely understand it, you know, better than your average Red Sox fan, anyway. And I was trying to tell Chris, Jesse, that we were just rehabbing, uh, Evaldi for them and they should, you know, give him the stupid contract. But, you know, we, we, <laughs> we did it anyway. But, Anyway, so speaking of trades, uh, let's uh, let's get into the Diamondbacks here. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt, you're, you know, the face of your franchise, probably from a perennial standpoint, the best, you know, the best offensive player, and he is a Gold Glover as well at first base, but probably the best all around National League player in the last. I don't know, five or six years at least, uh, Jesse. Sad to see him go, I assume. Oh, you're telling me, <laughs> Terry. <laughs> I think uh, uh, it's been it's been pretty tough watching my personal Twitter feed. Uh, a lot of Diamondbacks fans, a lot of tears. Um, but this is a guy who has meant so much to this organization in so many different ways. Uh, he's meant a lot, really, just to the local community in Arizona. He's done a lot of things uh, just around the city as well. Uh, and that's not really just an on the baseball diamond type of thing for, for the state of Arizona and letting him go uh, that makes this so difficult. But from a baseball standpoint, I don't, I don't know how many people would necessarily agree with me. I think a lot of Diamondbacks fans wish they could have a do over on this one. Uh, but I really trust uh, Mike Hazen. And I, I know, Terry, you are, of course, familiar with him and, and his background in the game of baseball, a uh, former GM there in Boston. But this is a guy who really knows what he's doing. And I don't think he's going to be perfect necessarily. He let, you know, Haniger and Segura get away to the Mariners. I think that was maybe a trade he would like to have back. He's not going to be perfect by any means, but it's it's a baseball it's a baseball business decision. And and things like this have to happen when you are a relatively small market team like the Diamondbacks are, and you have a star on an expiring contract who you're just not going to be able to pay. And, and I think the Diamondbacks would would not necessarily have to be in this position if they hadn't brought Zach Greinke on to, uh, I believe, at, at least at the time, it was the highest 
average annual value of a contract in the entire game of baseball playing for the Arizona Diamondbacks, a small market team. It was really ironic to see that happen at the time. Uh, but Dave Stewart, the ma- the general manager of the Diamondbacks prior to Mike Hazen taking over, he really set the Diamondbacks up to have no choice but to do something like this. Granke by himself takes more than a quarter of the Diamondbacks' entire payroll already. Yasmani Tomas uh, comes in second place on that list. He didn't play a single game last year. He wasn't even on the 40-man roster. And he pay- he, he made more money than Zach Granke, or excuse me, than Paul Goldschmidt did. Um, so I think from the Diamondbacks perspective, this is a move that they just simply had to make given the financial situation uh, that they're in. I think Mike Hazen said it this way. He said, you know, there are trades you want to make and there are trades you feel like you have to make. And this for the Diamondbacks was absolutely the second. Yeah, and what about the package you received? Chris uh, did a really good job breaking down what he thought of it and you know gave the background for the players involved what what was your you know how, how did you feel about it like was the value for for goldschmidt you know getting weaver and then is it was it carson kelly was that right yeah adequate or were you hoping for you know a bigger haul you know for basically like i said the best you know player all around in the National League. I think, you know, the the Diamondbacks did, as you said, they traded away one of the best players in the game. And you really, when you make that kind of a move, you never really feel like you got enough in return. Um, I I personally went with um, just a lot of the executives around the game of baseball who commented on this. I think Ken Rosenthal um, reported some of the things he'd been hearing from those guys. And a lot of them really liked it. Uh, some people, I think one guy said the Diamondbacks got a boatload or, or got quite a haul, I think was, was another phrase I heard used um, in exchange for Paul Goldschmidt. So I think around the league, the, what the Diamondbacks got in return is actually pretty well regarded. Um, but I think that also differs very much from what the average Diamondbacks fan is going to be thinking at this point because there really is no headliner name in all of this i think i personally think that luke weaver uh would maybe be the prize in this deal other people would say it's carson kelly um who has the higher ceiling as an everyday catcher um but i think the diamondbacks actually did pretty well in this and i'm probably in the minority in thinking that um but you you just you can't go just based off of the numbers luke weaver had a 495 era last year if you're just looking at that heck, this looks like a horrible trade. You know, he traded basically the best player uh, in the National League or very close to it for a guy who had an ERA of almost five. He's probably a back-end starter at best. But Luke Weaver has a has a big fastball. He's shown potential um, with a changeup, I believe it is. He is actually a pretty good young pitcher. Uh, he dominated the Diamondbacks at one point last season when they visited St. Louis. I think it was like six and a third innings, one run, seven strikeouts, something like that. He was really good in that game. Uh, And I remember watching that game, and I remember thinking, you know, here we go again with another guy in this St. Louis Cardinal system who's going to come up and, you know, maybe not be an ace, but probably be a really good number two or three starter uh, in this league for a long, long time. And I think Luke Weaver has the potential to be that. Players, as, as Ken Rosenthal, I think, tweeted at one point, players don't necessarily progress in a linear fashion just because, you know, a guy doesn't necessarily break into the big leagues with a big-time splash, you know, like the 
Juan Soto's of the world or, you know, guys like that who come up and just seem to adjust to the league instantly. Luke Weaver hasn't done that, but that doesn't mean he can't be really, really good in this league at some point. And the Diamondbacks will control him for a long time. I believe it's through 2024 that the Diamondbacks will control Luke Weaver. So, you know, and if you think in terms of years, the Diamondbacks traded one year of Paul Goldschmidt for six years of Luke Weaver. And I want to say it might even be seven years of for Carson Kelly. And, and so even if these guys don't necessarily pan out and become stars at their positions, there's a lot to be said, especially for a small market team like the Diamondbacks, for getting young players with decently high ceilings uh, and, and the ability to control them for that long of a time. Uh, so I, I, I don't it wasn't like I saw this return and I immediately, you know, went crazy and was super excited about what the Diamondbacks got back for Goldie. But by no means uh, do I think they embarrassed themselves in this trade. And and for Diamondbacks fans, uh, we've gotten used to being embarrassed uh, to some extent. And, and Mike Hazen hopefully uh, will bring that to an end here in the desert. Yeah, the one stat for Weaver that stood out to me was his strikeouts per nine. And it's even last year where, where it was a down year, he seemed to seemed to get a lot of strikeouts in, in certain spots. So, um, you know, if you guys can get him reined in, then I, I don't see why he couldn't be, you know, the successor to maybe Robbie Ray or, you know, or maybe be a, a notch above uh, Taiwan Walker, who you're probably uh, getting back this year. Uh, Chris, you kind of did break it down on the last episode, but why don't you uh, go go ahead again with uh, what your thoughts on the trade was? When I saw the trade, you know, be finalized, and then when I noticed what players were traded from St. Louis to Arizona, I mean, I'm – I'm by no means, I mean, I'm a Yankee fan through and through, but I thought the D-backs, without even having to look at, okay, who did they get? Because as soon as I saw the names, I was like, the D-backs got a lot. On top of, let's not forget, they got a compensation pick, I think, in round B. So that's going to be inter- you know, interesting to see how they use that pick. But the right. two players that we mentioned with Carson Kelly and Luke Weaver, I mean, certain players don't, end up like Juan Soto's, Miguel Andujar's, the Glaber Torres's, where they're always going to be good and there's no down period. Every player eventually is going to have to go through a stretch and no player is the same. And Luke Weaver, you could say, kind of fell out of favor in that rotation because of Miles Michaelis, Ponce de Leon. You look at all the big arms they have, Alex Reyes. I mean, the Cardinals just churn out, you know, starting pitchers like – uh, you know, there's a high school that isn't too far from where I live called Ansonia, Ansonia High School. It's a big-time football program, and they churn out running backs. It's the same thing with St. Louis. They just find guys who can pitch. And Luke Weaver kind of fell out of favor. He was looked at as an expendable piece, and they were able to use him on top of Carson Kelly and some others to get a guy that they needed. But I think Luke Weaver is a good you know, mid-rotation starter who could realistically – in a year or two, really be amongst the top in the NL, you know, in the NL West. And as far as Carson Kelly, I mean, except for power, this kid can do everything. I saw him play in the Futures game. I've watched games from time to time on my computer when I've been able to watch minor league games in the past. And he calls a great game. He's a converted infielder. And from everyone I've talked to, from scouts and so on, they love the kid. And they projected him as an all-star player. And I think that says a lot. And I understand that we live in the day and age where 
power of this, power of that, launch angle. I'm fine with a catcher who hits 10 to 15 home runs but can call an A game with my pitchers and blocks and receives everything, blocks everything and receives to a point where he can control the running game. Because as a guy who's seen Gary Sanchez for the last two years, you know, at, you know, during the full season, I'll take Carson Kelly over Gary Sanchez any day. And I, I even I would put that out even if Sanchez was hitting well, because <laughs> defensively you need a defensive catcher. Look what the Red Sox did last year. Their mm-hmm. catcher, I mean, their catchers were nowhere close to Gary Sanchez. But what they did defensively in calling games was a plus. Yeah, and apparently any of our catchers are available right now for trade. Dombrowski won't rule out, you know, trading any of them. But uh, Jesse, um, is is he going to catch with you guys? Is that what the tentative plan was? Because he has had some infield work as well. Yeah, I think Carson Kelly through and through is, is definitely a catching prospect. Uh, at this stage in his career, like Chris mentioned, he is a converted infielder. He did do that at one point. Uh, but I think I, I think really the most valuable thing he brings to the game is his defense behind the plate, like Chris was describing. Um, the bat has yet to come. I think a lot of Diamondbacks fans looked at his offensive numbers last year and were really scared. Uh, I believe he hit about a buck forty. Uh, not impressive numbers at all. His career batting average over uh, several seasons, he's had a really limited opportunity, but the numbers are not good at all. Um, so I, I think maybe there's some questions as to if Kelly can really make the adjustment uh, to the major leagues and really become that all-star, you know, everyday catcher that, that people were thinking. Um, but he was blocked by one of the best catchers in MLB history, you know, in Yadier Molina. He, he really had no path to an everyday role in St. Louis, at least, you know, not in the past and, and probably not even this season. Um, so I think that the Diamondbacks give Carson Kelly a really big opportunity because he's going to come in here and he's probably going to be the guy. The D-backs have John Ryan Murphy, who uh, Chris actually might be familiar with, former New York Yankee. Uh, I think the D-backs like John Ryan Murphy to some extent. He's, he's a pretty decent defender. Uh, he hit for the first half of the season, really struggled in the second half. Uh, Alex Avila is the other catcher on the roster. Uh, he is probably nemesis number one. Uh, here in Arizona, he was. Uh, it was really hard watching Alex Avila take some at bats last year. He struck out in, I believe it was right around 50% of his plate appearances uh, on the offensive side of the game. He was really, really bad, and he's probably he was probably the worst defensive catcher that the D-backs had last year as well. Uh, so all of that to say, Carson Kelly's going to come in here. He's going to have an opportunity to uh, maybe not catch every single day. Uh, but probably catch most games for the Diamondbacks right out of the gate. And I think Mike Hazen really believes in him. And, and maybe that's all it takes for a guy like Carson Kelly who has that high ceiling. Maybe he just needed someone to believe in him and give him this opportunity. And that's what the Diamondbacks are hopefully going to do in 2019. Well, you guys definitely have a, a good manager uh, in terms of working with young talent. We saw it with the Red Sox in 2015 with Lavello and Farrell of course was out with his with his cancer leave and Lavello took over the last couple of years and that was the first big breakthrough for Jackie Bradley where he just went on just a real hot streak I think he was hitting he was hitting over 400 for like four or five weeks and never really went to the minors after that and uh, you know Mookie kind of 
you know, made a big step forward under Lavello and Joe Kelly was eight and zero as a starter, you know, and maybe that maybe that's just dumb luck or pitching on a team that was in last place, so there was no pressure. You know, there were a lot of theories kicked around, but I really think you you have the right guy managing the team, you know, where you're going to be bringing up the Carson Kellys and whoever else you might acquire, you know, in, you know, other transactions perhaps over the coming weeks. So, um, and, uh, you know, you, you've touched on Hazen and I just think, I think he's going to put together a good team for you guys. And uh, let me, uh, let's uh, talk about Zach Grinky right here. If you could put a percentage on it, what are the chances he gets traded, you know, within the next four or five weeks, if not sooner? I think for Granky, uh, if I had to put a percentage on it, I would probably say about 40. Uh, I think it's probably more likely it doesn't happen than it does. Um, but I, I definitely wouldn't put it out of question. Uh, I think the the one thing that Mike Hazen could do that would, uh, you know, make it make up for his error of trading Paul Goldschmidt in the eyes of many Diamondbacks fans. As I mentioned, I do not think it was an error. I think it was the right move. Um, But from a PR standpoint, it was a pretty rough hit for Arizona. And I think the one thing that Mike Hazen could do to make up for that is to find a way to unload Granke's contract and, dare I say, bring back Paul Goldschmidt next season. I do not think that is likely. Uh, Do not... Uh, do not think that I'm saying the Diamondbacks are definitely going to bring back Goldie. Um, but I do think you really enjoyed his time here. I think that the Diamondbacks will definitely express interest when the time comes uh, if he is not locked up by the St. Louis Cardinals. And I do not personally think he will be. I think Goldschmidt has already played the game of signing a, a contract and not testing, not holding out until free agency. And with the Diamondbacks, he did that and he lost out on a lot of money. Uh, the Diamondbacks were paying Paul Goldschmidt probably about half to, uh, you know, maybe even a third of his market value for the last several several seasons because he did go ahead and be aggressive and sign a long-term contract with the D-backs. I don't think he's necessarily looking to do that. I think he will probably hold out in St. Louis as good and as historic and as a vibrant of a fan base as they have out there in St. Louis. I don't think Goldschmidt will resign there. And if Mike Hazen can find a way to work his magic and unload the Zach Granke contract, I think it's it's maybe within reason that the D-backs could find a way to bring Goldschmidt back. There are many obstacles uh, to moving Granke, however, which is why I, I'm not really banking on it necessarily. Uh, he has a no-trade clause with 15 teams. A lot of those are, are the contending teams who would probably be most interested in a guy like Zach Granke. But what the D-backs do have going for them is that Granke is still a very good pitcher. I believe he's still got a few Cy Young votes tossed his way this last year. He's he's grown into a pretty consistent guy. He's not the guy he was with the Dodgers several years ago when he posted a 166 ERA. But he's a really good top-of-the-rotation type starting pitcher, even you know into his mid-30s. And I think despite the big contract numbers, if the D-backs can find a way to work around the no-trade clause situation— He's a, he's a guy that teams are going to be interested in. Uh, and Terry, I know the Red Sox are maybe a, a team that, that you had in mind for him. I, I wouldn't even rule that out. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask you exactly whether 
if he were traded, if that might make bringing Goldschmidt back possible. But the, the interesting thing with Goldschmidt is he's going to hit free agency at the same time J.D. Martinez likely will again. And because next after this season will be the, the first opportunity Martinez will have to opt out. So I, it's just interesting to kind of think about how they might build each other's markets, you know, over the, you know, this upcoming season. But anyway, getting getting back to Grinky though, it just seems far-fetched that you'll be able to unload the entire contract. Right. I'm guessing. I mean, if you could... If you could unload two thirds of it, would that be, would that still be, you know, a, a successful trade in your opinion? Yeah, I think so. I, I think the Diamondbacks are very much hampered by the fact that Zach Greinke, um, that Zach Greinke is on the roster, not because he's not a good pitcher. You know, he's fifteen and eleven with a three two one ERA. Last year, over 200 innings, he was regular old Zach Greinke. He's still a very good pitcher, uh, but it, it just just kind of by its very nature, when you are a relatively small market team like the Diamondbacks, you don't go and sign pitchers to you know the biggest free agent contract that that really any team is dishing out. Especially at the time, you know they gave Greinke 36 million dollars per year. No other pitcher, even David Price, who signed for, he did get an extra year. I believe the Red Sox signed him for seven, but his his AAV was only $31 million. Uh, so the Diamondbacks really went far above and beyond uh, what they have ever, ever done in the past with the signing of Zach Greinke. And I, I don't know if they completely regret the move. I think last year was a really fun season. Uh, for the D-backs when they won over 90 games, they got to the playoffs, and I think Zach Greinke was a huge part of that. Not sure if that happens if Greinke's not on the roster. But at this point, now that the Diamondbacks seem to be um, more on a downward trajectory now that Goldschmidt um, is gone, and, and last year they really folded in the month of September, I think that's part of the reason why they decided to move on from Goldschmidt, is they decided to they realized that maybe this current roster, this core that the Diamondbacks have just isn't really ready uh, to take them to the playoffs. And and I think they're maybe not in a, in a full rebuild at this point, but I think they're retooling. Um, and, and I think that Zach Greinke, although he was a big part of the Diamondbacks while they were good, uh, I think this, this might be the time. Uh, I, as you mentioned, uh, two-thirds of the contract, I think that probably would be um, a success from the D-backs perspective. I think it, it really depends on if the Diamondbacks want um, more prospects or if they're more thinking about the money. Um, because I think if a team did take on two-thirds of the contract, I don't think the Diamondbacks would get much in terms of prospect value in return for him. Um, so I think for, for Mike Hazen in the front office, it's probably just about finding the right balance between the dollars and, and the prospects that would come back in a, in a trade like that. Chris, what are some potential landing spots, you know, from your point of view, you know, as to where Grinky could go if if the no trade clause could be worked out? If see, Grinky, Grinky is one of those guys people tend to forget. I know I've seen 
just random tweets from people, not not so much writers, but just people that I follow where they're like, oh, he should go to the Red Sox or he can go to the Yankees or he can go to here or there. But people forget that when Greinke was with the Royals, he took a leave of absence from the game. He, he I, I don't know exactly what problem he has, but I know he has a, a, a like, An anxiety I don't know disorder. the exact yeah, he has sort of a disorder. I don't want to get it wrong and then have people think that I'm, you know, I'm not trying to. No, seriously, I'm being honest. Because yeah, I get it. You got to take that serious. And Granky has that kind of problem where big market. I think a big market team. Not saying he would revert back to that, but I think because of. I mean, look, he's he's been in the draft room with the D-backs. This is a guy that once he retires. I think he's going to move to the front office and maybe even be a GM one day because he's so analytically sound and he's one of the smartest guys in baseball. And that's why he's been able to reinvent himself from a guy who threw 95 to 96 with a 166 ERA with the Dodgers to now the velocity is going down, but he's still able to pitch because he's outsmarting guys. He's pitching with smarts. So, I wish I could say that he can go to a big market team like the Phillies or maybe even the Braves who do need a starting pitcher, a veteran who could be in the back end and be that stabilizer with you know with their young pups of Fulton Nefich and Newcomb. They also have Ian, you know Ian Anderson who's coming up the pipeline and others. But you know it's it's hard to really say where he can go at the end of the day because does the contract fit? Does he fit? And does the fit of being able to eat most of it and then giving up the talent back, that's the biggest hurdles. Yeah, I don't put a, a ton into the whole – I think it was an anxiety disorder. If anybody, if I'm wrong and anybody wants to roast me, you know, that's just another day in the life for me anyway. But um, <laughs> I think you're right this time, Jay. <laughs> yeah, I definitely am. But I don't look at the Los Angeles market as a small market. Is it as intense as New York or even Boston? Probably not. But, I mean, it's, it's a decent baseball town. And, I mean, he was – his ERA was 263 uh, in his age 29 season there, 271 the following year, and then in his last year before he opted out, a 166 ERA. I mean, that would be a town that he would struggle in if that really was going to be a major factor, and I just don't see it. And and Jesse, you say he's not the guy he was back then, and, and I get it. That's fair. You know, he seems to have developed a slider in, you know, the past couple of years. And, you know, his his game has kind of, you know, revolved around that. But I would love it if he came to Boston. I would take that chance. I don't think he could be any worse of a head case than David Price has been at times. And <laughs> and I know he, he was a hero in, in the World Series and... But many Red Sox fans forget the team had to carry him into Game 5 against the Astros before he started kind of doing his thing that he'd been doing all season. But, you know, he got absolutely destroyed by the Yankees again. And I predicted that right to the exact out. I said he would go an inning and two-thirds. That's all he lasted in Game 2 of the ALDS. And then... He got thumped around in his first start against the Astros. I think he went maybe four and two-thirds, gave up four runs, something like that. But the the team uh, offensively, uh, you know, pulled through. 
And with with Grinky, I just feel like if, if he's got David Price in front of him, he's got Chris Sale in front of him, Eduardo Rodriguez, Rick Porcello have been, you know, in the Boston market for a while. I don't really have a ton of uh, reservations. And if you can get him down to a $22 million a year player or so, I would do it. And I'm not looking at him as the replacement for sale if he isn't re-signed after 2019. I'm looking at him being as more of a replacement for Rick Porcello, maybe. And, you know, as it's remove Porcello, you know, from the picture and, and pretend it's 2020. You still have price. You still have, you'd have Grinky still. You have Nathan Evaldi. You'd have Erod. That's a pretty good one through four right there. And that Grinky deal is only for three more years. Only for three more years. So that's extremely palatable, I would say, for any team that you know wants to acquire him. And, and like you said, Chris, he's a smart pitcher. You know, he's he's gonna he's gonna find ways to be effective and. I just I think any team if they can if they can get the Diamondbacks to eat a third of it, which is entirely reasonable, I think they're getting a good pitcher. And I don't care what how big the skyscrapers are in the city, he's gonna pitch in. You know, he's he's a good pitcher. So well, don't forget though too though Terry that the, there is some money that is deferred to him. So I don't know how that's gonna be worked out. You know, after his contract is up, if you know, the D-backs will, are going to continue on paying that, or is the team that, if he's traded to, are they going to pay that? But, I mean, I have a list of the of the teams that are on his no-trade list. The O's, the Red Sox, the Reds, the Rockies, Tigers, Yankees, A's, Padres, Giants, Cardinals, Blue Jays, Angels, Dodgers, Twins, Phillies. And it's funny that the Dodgers are on his no-trade list, and he played for them. So that's kind of <laughs> an interesting theory there. But I think if... If Greinke is going to get traded, I the way I mean, if you guys remember, and this didn't happen too long ago, the Mariners and the Mets when they traded Cano, they added an, an all-star closer and Edwin Diaz in the mix. And while the Mariners got back a, a couple good prospects, Kalenic, who could be a five-tool all-star if everything clicks, and Justin Dunn, who I think is going to be a closer, but that's neither here nor there. I think if they can do something like that, where if the D-backs if the D-backs add a player, maybe maybe of not that Diaz ilk, but maybe a guy like David Peralta or somebody who can offset some of the money, you might not get that great of a return back. But I think if you're a D-backs fan and in some ways give up less of – trying to figure out how to word this. Give up – acquire less talent back but then save more money – so then you can use that said money that you save either on your international market or in the draft if you want to pay more for an overslot player. And then that can kind of be the makeup for the trade that you did with with Grenke and whoever else you gave up for him. Yeah, I mean, I think he'll still net a, a decent prospect and then maybe some lower-level guys that may work out, may not. But I don't think... I don't think just because a team's taking on two thirds of it doesn't mean they're not going to be sending, you know, anyone of significance that way. And if 
I'm admittedly I'm not well versed when it comes to you know the draft and the the international pools and slot money and all that um but you know there's plenty of ways to structure it and I I think Mike Hazen's smart enough to you know get decent enough value for him But I'm, I'm, and just to reiterate, you know, I, I, I have no reservations whatsoever about him, and the no trade clause, especially, that's just leverage for him. That's just so he has a little bit of say of, you know, of where he goes. You know, he he wouldn't want to be traded to the Texas Rangers or some or or San Francisco. I don't know if they were on that list, but. You know, he he'd probably want to be with a competitive team, and I think that's, you know, that's why no trade clauses are really put in there to just give the player the leverage. One thing I do want to throw out there real quick is, you know, you guys were talking about the size of the skyscrapers and what Granky would do in a market like Boston. Uh, to be honest, I I personally, if I were a Red Sox fan, Zach Greinke is probably not the guy I would have at the top of my list. Maybe just because he pitched in Fenway Park. I believe it was a year or two ago when the Diamondbacks went out there and he got completely slaughtered. I think he lasted about an inning, gave up like seven or eight runs. or It was a, oh, one wow. of the worst outings I've ever seen. Uh, he did not look comfortable in Fenway whatsoever. And, and I mean, I'm sure part of that is that you know, the Red Sox have had one of the best offenses in the game for, for quite a while now, so I'm sure that played into it at, at some point. But one thing I will say about Granky to Chris's point is that he is a very brilliant baseball mind. Uh, he is the kind of guy who will figure out how to get players out with the stuff that he has. Um, and so if you went to Boston, my expectation is that he would not be very good at the beginning. Uh, he wasn't very good either when he came uh, to the Diamondbacks. Actually, the Diamondbacks pre-Humidor back in 2016 had the second most hitter-friendly park in all of baseball behind only Coors Field, of course. Um, and I think that was really hard for Zach Greinke to try to figure out how to make the transition uh, between Dodger Stadium and Chase Field. It, it was not seamless for him whatsoever. I was at the first game that he ever pitched. As a Diamondback on opening day 2016, he got completely shelled. Uh, did not look like uh, the pitcher that the Diamondbacks had wanted for their you know 206.5 million dollar paycheck that they're giving him over the next six years. Um, but Granky figured it out. Uh, he struggled as a Diamondback for for quite a while. It wasn't just the first start. It was about one or two months after that. His ERA was still in the fives. Everyone was freaking out because the Diamondbacks had given one of the richest contracts in MLB history to a guy who was not pitching well whatsoever. But but Granke finished 2016 pretty well. Uh, he had some injury issues, I believe, finished with a 437 ERA, uh, which given how he started the season was, was really good. Uh, and then he came back last year, uh, 2017, and he went 17-7 and with a 320, uh, a 3.20 ERA. So this is a guy who, if he went to Boston— I honestly would not want to be at his first game. I would probably not want to be at his second game. I think it would take Zach Greinke a little bit of time to acclimate himself to pitching in the AL East. Uh, he has predominantly pitched in the National League uh, in his uh, in his at least recent career. Obviously, he started with the Royals. 
Um, but the AL Central is certainly not uh, historically as good of an offensive division as uh, the AL East is. Uh, so there would no doubt be a period of time where Granke would have to acclimate himself to that situation. But given his baseball mind, I think, you know, give Granke a year or two in Fenway, I think at that point he would probably be a pretty good pitcher for the Red Sox. Yeah, and like I said, there's only three years left, and you're you're giving them essentially Rick Porcello money. It's just it's a chance I would take, and I mean, I get what you're saying. You know, he's he's finicky and and pitched in the National League for the last several years, and and you know, there's risk with anything, but um, you know, I just feel like. I don't know. I, I I would do it. I just think he he's got a pretty strong rotation around him, and and admittedly, I mean, this is a Red Sox audience, but there are probably going to be other teams in play, and and um, you know, the his there there would more likely be a different destination than Boston. I guess is is what I'm saying. Uh, we'll get back into the uh, Diamondbacks in a second, but have you guys been looking at the uh, trade rumors right now? Well, I just I was just about to mention that about this, you know, potential three. Uh, I think you're talking about the potential th- three yeah. team trade between the Mets, the Marlins, and the Yankees. Yeah, and uh, it's saying that Real Muto would end up with the, the Mets. Mets. Yeah, and it doesn't really say what the other pieces involved would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, who would well, the Yankees? That is interesting. Who would New York get between the Mets and the Marlins? To be honest with you, I it's it's hard to speculate on what they would get, who they would get. I saw someone mention maybe Noah Syndergaard to the Yankees, but you know that this is interesting. I mean, the Mets, the Mets, and the Yankees haven't made a really significant trade. Since the Yankees, I think they got Mike Stanton for Felix Heredia, or maybe it was going to be around. It was one of those. But anyhow, that was like one of the only really times the Mets have actually traded player for player. So, you know, I got to admit, I had questions about Brody when he came in as the general manager because an agent to a GM, you wonder about a lot between the players' relations. Does he know how to be a GM? But I just tweeted out, and I have to admit, this guy, he wants to win, and he's going to do anything in order to be able to help this team improve. And he doesn't care a rat's booty if you're if you're the crosstown rival. He doesn't care. If you have a player he wants, he's going to at least talk and try to acquire, or at least in a way, find some sort of loophole to get some sort of player back. So I got to give a lot of credit. He's trying to win. You can't fault him for it. Syndergaard would make a lot of sense because I just feel like the Yankees came up, you know, short on Corbin and they're not really in on, you know, Keiko right now. I guess Atlanta seems to be the team he's recently connected to, but I just feel like they're not, they're not going to come off a Red Sox World Series year without making a major splash and, James Paxton yeah. isn't that guy, and you know maybe it is Syndergaard. You know I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see how that works out because you figure somebody's got to send something to Miami too, you know, which figures to be a pretty significant haul because they've been basically asking for the world 
uh, you know, for Real Muto, who only has two more years of control. So I don't know. Well, the the thing is, if if Real Muto is going to the Mets, and let's say, for example, Syndergaard was going to the Yankees, you wonder, because the Mets farm system is not – I mean, comparing the Mets to the Yankee farm system, it's Yankees and then Mets down here, especially after the trade that the Mets made. So I wonder if the Yankees would be giving up maybe more prospects to the Marlins in order to kind of offset the JT Met trade, and then that would kind of be okay. The Mets are not giving up a lot in terms of prospects, but they're going to give up a player in Noah Syndergaard because the Yankees gave up a lot of prospects to the Marlins. I mean, I'm just thinking out loud here, but for what the Marlins, at least from what I've read, want for JT Romuto, the Yankees have what at least what they're looking for. But it's it's kind of one of those things where a, th- a three-team trade, it wouldn't surprise me if Cashman, Brody, and Jeter are all just sitting at the bar and like, hey, you want to do a, th- a three-team trade? Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. And someone's snapping a picture of it and running with it. But um, as far as the Mets would go, though, if that's how the rotation works, you know, JT to the Mets, Syndergaard Mm. to the Yankees, prospects back to um, Miami, from the Mets' perspective, that's kind of a one-for-one trade. Like, is JT Real Muto, two years of him, enough to give up Syndergaard? I mean, that sounds light to me. Well, I mean, look, the Mets got Cano and Diaz for one thing. They want to win now. I think Brody, as a GM, he's not as connected with these prospects. And to a certain degree, you know, there might be some players that he likes more than others. Whereas if this was a guy who was in some ways like an in-house candidate, like an Omar Minaya, maybe he'd be a little bit less hesitant to want to trade those players. But... Brody wants to win, and, you know, Syndergaard, for every, you know, he has a lot of talent, he has ace-like potential, but the injury history, the fact that he wants to throw 110 miles an hour instead of dialing back and becoming more of a pitcher has really become a problem where if the Mets did trade him, I know he's a fan favorite, but you can get a, a lot for a guy with three years of control. We mentioned that before earlier in the podcast, how teams value prospects, Teams also value three years. I mean, three years of control, Terry, is you can it's, – it's that's like you just struck oil for a team. Three years of control for a pitcher, that's that's substantially amount of talent on top of the contract that is so affordable for that team that acquires the pitcher. Yeah, and I get that. I just, just from the Mets side, I just, uh, but I get they are trying to win now, so. It's a win now move. Yeah, and maybe maybe they want to shake up the clubhouse, is, you know, a little too, and, and mm-hmm. Syndergaard is kind of a key figure behind the scenes and seems to, I don't know, I mean, he, he might seem to be a little dramatic and, I know he wasn't getting along with the training staff a couple years ago when they wanted him to have an MRI. He refused to do it, and then <laughs> he's on the DL right after his next start for I can't remember if it was the rest of the year or it was a latch strain. He heard it against the Nationals. Yeah, he was out for a while, and and 
So maybe they just want to kind of shake up the chemistry a little bit. But but then again, they're they're at a you know they're acquiring a player from Miami who's like. <laughs> Not bashful about saying I I want to get out of this shithole. You know I don't want to spend my career on this team. So I don't know what they're really gaining. You know in terms of character. But uh, Jesse, do you want to weigh in on this before we uh, wrap up? Uh, I, I want to do t- mention at least one more thing with the D backs. But Biggie's on mute. Sorry about that, fellas. Hopefully you can hear me now. Yes, it's okay. <laughs> there you go. Uh, one thing I wanted to throw out real quick is that Ken Rosenthal about 20 minutes ago uh, did tweet out that it is not known if Cindergard is involved, but he did say that the Mets would not part with Cindergard three years of control there um, if getting only Real Muto okay. in return. That was yeah, my concern. concern. Okay. Yeah, and I, I don't think, uh, like uh, you were mentioning earlier, Terry, I don't think this makes sense for the Mets. Um, if you're parting with Cindergard, because if you, I mean, if it is a win now move, you know, win now moves are, are traditionally, you know, you're trading your young prospects uh, who, you know, are guys who would maybe contribute more a couple years from now for guys who can help you uh, in the moment uh, currently. And I think Cindergard, as much as, you know, he has had his issues, he's been injured a lot. He hasn't really developed into the ace that I think the Mets have hoped he would be. Um, but if they are going to be, you know, suddenly an actual contending team uh, in an NL East division that's that's you know starting to get pretty darn good um, with what the Nationals have done as of late. Uh, Syndergaard is going to be at the center of that. That's the only way that I see the Mets really taking that next step is if Noah Syndergaard turns into that type of ace that they need him to be. If this goes through, my expectation is the Mets would probably be parting with guys um, who are younger, uh, guys who are maybe a year or two away. Uh, I, I, at least from my standpoint, I'm sure, um, you know, maybe the Mets GM is, is in a different place right now. But but from my standpoint, it just wouldn't make sense to part with Syndergaard in a move like this. Yeah, I, we'll have to see. I mean, it, there's the scenarios are endless, you know, when you have three teams involved. So, um, you know, well, uh, I don't know if anything will happen uh, during the night, but it is only day one of the winter meetings. Um, all right, so just to, you know, kind of wrap up with the Diamondbacks here, um, long term, you guys do have a, a new stadium finalized, do you not? Um, not that I'm aware of, Terry. There, were, there have been rumors uh, surrounding that situation for quite some time. Um, I think there was there was actually like a, a somewhat specific location that was brought up somewhere in the Scottsdale area, uh, which is one of the nicer parts of town uh, in the Phoenix metro area. I think a lot of people uh, would would really enjoy that if if they did build a stadium there. Um, but as of right now, the situation uh, seems to be uh, kind of on hold. Uh, I wouldn't you know put it past the Diamondbacks for trying to do this at some point in the future. Their stadium is starting to. Uh, age a little bit um, they've been playing in the same place for um, their entire 21 years of existence so far uh, which is I believe one of uh, not you know the oldest stadium by any means but definitely on the older end of the spectrum with uh, really a lot of teams around the league having uh, moved to newer facilities as of late um, so I think it's something the Diamondbacks will inevitably do at some point probably not more than 10 or 15 years from now um, but they have not to my knowledge uh, set any plans for anything like that yet 
My bad. I thought they were because uh, they're leasing uh, Chase Stadium, are they not? Similar to like how Tampa has an agreement with the Trop. Right. Yeah, I think I believe it's with Maricopa County, which is of course the county in the Phoenix area. I think they have some sort of uh, agreement outlined there. Uh, it is actually it's it's going to be difficult for the Diamondbacks because they would probably um, maybe need some sort of public funding for for a project like that. I don't know if the Diamondbacks organization um, is prepared to make that kind of investment. Uh, maybe they're able to get uh, donors on board or whatnot to to make this something that could actually happen. Um, but there are multiple stadiums in the Phoenix area that probably need to be renovated. Um, right next door to Chase Field, actually, the Talking Stick Resort Arena, I believe it's called, where the Phoenix Suns play. Uh, that is one of the oldest arenas. Um, I think there have actually been talks as of late that I have heard um, about the Suns maybe trying to move to a newer facility. So uh, the Phoenix area in general, I think they're going to be maybe a little bit burdened with requests for, for newer facilities for some of the local franchises. Uh, so the Diamondbacks might get pushed to the back burner because of that. Okay, yeah, no, I thought there kind of was a, a timeline in place to uh, exit Chase, but I, I guess I'm wrong on that. I, and most of what I'm seeing dates back to last spring and nothing really new since then. So um, I, so I guess my question going forward is this. Um, are you like are you guys gonna be able to kind of escape the small market? you know the you know basically the small market payroll that you're kind of limited to right now like do you do you guys see yourself becoming a bigger market team with maybe not a, a payroll that would ever exceed the luxury tax but a top maybe six seven or eight type team you know by the time hazen is done working as magic uh, honestly, Terry, I, I would love to believe that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's anything that uh, Diamondbacks fans, Valley sports fans would want more than to um, just be just be rid of the label of being a small market team. It hurts things like what just happened with the Diamondbacks trading away your franchise player, literally, you know, the guy on this team, especially for a team that uh, last year things didn't go uh, the way the Diamondbacks wanted them to in the end, but they still, you know, spent more days in first place in the NL West than any team um, in that division by a long shot. The Dodgers weren't close. The Rockies weren't close. The Diamondbacks really ruled uh, the NL West for pretty much the entire season, except for, unfortunately, the very end of the year. Um, so I think it hurts uh, for, for a team, for a franchise uh, that seemed to be heading in the right direction in terms of, of contention, uh, this year was set up to be Goldie's last year, uh, potentially. Um, uh, but, but it was expected to be a season where the Diamondbacks would contend and, and maybe put Goldschmidt in a position to really start to get some recognition on the national level in you know big moments past the first round of the playoffs. And unfortunately, the Diamondbacks have not uh, been able to make that happen. And, and from all indications, uh, this is a relatively small market team that for the foreseeable future, uh, you know, their, their TV deal is good. I know they've made some money there, but uh, unless something unforeseen happens uh, with their current ownership, I think the Diamondbacks are pretty cemented as a mid to lower tier market at this point. 
Yeah, I just hope the new stadium materializes, you know, because that obviously could help with marketability and, you know, getting the fan base more, you know, involved. But it it looks like you guys are kind of in in a similar situation as the Indians then. Just, you got to, you know, Hazen walked into kind of a tricky situation. You had the the Grinky deal, as you said, which makes up about a quarter of your overall payroll. And then, you know, it's tough. You know, that's a tough situation for him. And, and you guys kind of have to find a way to turn it over, you know, and still kind of be relevant. And I know you have a, a bottom, you know, a bottom five farm system. So, you know, that'll hopefully get addressed. And, and who who are some potential? We'll, we'll wrap it up with this. Who who else could possibly be traded for value? You know, despite the fact that Hazen says you're not really looking at a full rebuild, but what player or two could really help bolster that that farm system? Yeah, I think the Diamondbacks. Uh, the comforting thing is that if they did want to go down the route of of not tearing this thing down completely um but you know maybe bringing it only to their really young guys uh, who have maybe some potential for the future uh but yeah there there are some names that i think would would excite some teams out there robbie ray um it, it probably wouldn't be the guy the diamondbacks would want to part with but he's the kind of guy that that some team out there could really overwhelm them for uh he got cy young votes back in 2017 uh, last year, he dealt with an oblique problem. wasn't quite the same uh, overall finish with an ERA a little bit under four, uh, but he has big time stuff. Uh, he's got a fastball 95, 96, 97 from the left side, a uh, wipeout slider, really good curveball that he's brought um, at really out of nowhere over the last couple seasons. A lot of people have credited uh, the rise of Robbie Ray to the development of that curveball. Um, and, and he he is probably one of the better young pitchers in the National League. Uh, he has a lot of control left, I believe, probably four years, I want to say. Um, so he's a guy that if the Diamondbacks were to put him out there on the market, I think he could bring a lot back. Uh, David Peralta, maybe uh, not not as well known as he probably should be, um, but this is a this is a an outfielder, a corner outfielder who's who's really been pretty consistent. Uh, for the Diamondbacks offensively during his career in Arizona. He won a Silver Slugger Award um, this season, uh, which a lot of people might not even know who David Peralta is, uh, but he really is. Um, he, he's he's probably the Diamondbacks' best hitter at this point, and, and that's not a horrible thing because, as I mentioned, he won a Silver Slugger Award. Uh, he's yeah, He hit 30 home runs. He has that kind of power. Um, so he's another guy that, that comes to mind, maybe an Archie Bradley, um, who had a bit of a down year, did not have a good second half at all, um, but he's got big stuff as well in the, in the back end of a bullpen. So if the Diamondbacks did want to go down the route of tearing some things down, they could, they could in theory, uh, build this thing back up pretty quickly. Yeah, I didn't realize Ray had that much control left, so I, that, that is kind of intriguing if... Um if that did come to fruition, uh, more Mets Yankees news. Uh, there is some talk of Syndergaard being a part of the negotiations, according to Andy Martino. So that kind of contradicts Rosenthal's 
uh, tweet. So that's a very fluid situation, which will probably play out over the next uh, 24 hours. But, Chris, uh, did you want to give any final thoughts before we uh, call it a show? Well, I'm glad that we were able to do this during the the breaking news between the potential three, you know, three team trade between the Marlins, the Yankees, and the Mets. And you know, as I mentioned before, Brody wants to win. He doesn't care if it's the Yankees or whoever. He wants to win. And if you have a player that can help him, or if you're a team that can help him acquire a player, then the Yankees, I think, are a good piece. They have a better farm system. They can kind of offset the prospects and. People kind of, you know, they, you know, they see the small spectrum rather than seeing the bigger picture here. That the Marlins have, if I recall, you know, former Yankee front office people and players, etc. And Dembo was a former front office guy who ran the farm system for the Yankees. Was one of a one of the top guys under Cashman, and he knows that farm system through and through. And it would not surprise me if. You know, I, I don't think Frazier would be a part of the deal going to the Marlins if the Yankees are going to offset the prospects. I think it's going to be a Floreal. And maybe, and this is a big maybe, I think Michael King might even be another one because the Marlins flipped Michael King a couple years ago for you know Garrett Cooper and Caleb Smith. And they just gave up Michael King for nothing. And he's been, by all means, a pretty legit starter in the minor leagues where he could easily be a number three, if low, number four. But it's it's this is going to be intriguing. This is why the winter meetings are so uh, – they're interesting to be able to pay attention to because you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, for all we know, this could just be a big old you know smoke screen and it might not even turn into anything. Or we could wake up tomorrow morning and Noah Syndergaard is a Yankee. Who knows? <laughs> that would be uh, an interesting start to my morning anyway. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it seems like there's more trades right now being discussed than, than free agency, um, at least after the first day. So, anyway, I could talk baseball all night, but I won't keep you guys uh, up any later. Well, actually, Jesse, you're three hours behind us. But uh, we certainly – Appreciate you coming on, and uh, maybe, um, you know, maybe before the season starts or at some point during, uh, we can catch up and see what's going on with your uh, Diamondbacks. And I'm also wondering, too, if maybe you'll be active, more active in, you know, July 31st than, uh, you know, this winter, you know, because who knows? I mean, maybe you'll be competitive, mm. maybe you won't be, but. Uh, There'll definitely be a lot to keep an eye on uh, one way or the other. Thanks for having me, Terry. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again. And uh, we'll uh, let's see what the rest of the week, <laughs> you know, unfolds. It's so. always a fun, always a fun week, the winter meetings in mid-December. Yeah. And then baseball doesn't exist for, you know, 60 days, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. All right. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. Have a good night. You too. You as well, Terry. And uh, that will uh, conclude. Admittedly, I don't even know what episode this is. 106, 107. But uh, the opening for the uh, winter meetings, uh, nonetheless. And 
We uh, are planning on doing a show Thursday night, which I believe is the last day of the winter meetings. I can't remember if that carries into Friday, but uh, several moves uh, will have been made by then. And um, not sure how active the Red Sox will be. I did mean to mention uh, Adam Ottavino apparently is one of Dombrowski's top targets, and he comes from the Rockies, and that's in the same division uh, that Jesse covers. So bummer for that. I uh, I wish they would have uh, thought of that a little sooner, but. Anyway, uh, have a good uh, rest of your week. And again, we will catch up with you on Thursday to break down what uh, went down throughout the winter meetings and uh, basically take it from there. So take care, everyone. It's a kind of insanity.